0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number
1: 23. So, you always want to preview value because we want to operate with the philosophy that people care about one thing more than anything else themselves. And so, what is the value I can present? So, when I engage someone, I want to lead with value. Welcome to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it
0: really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everybody. I am Jay Scott. I am your co host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast here again this week with my lovely wife and co host, Mrs. Carol Scott. How are you doing today, Carol?
2: I'm doing so super great, honey. Thank you very very much. So guess what, Bigger Pockets Business Community, we have another wonderful freebie for you. You like listening to podcasts? Well, guess what, you should also like listening to audiobooks. Listening on the run is such an efficient way to use your time. So, if you are interested in getting into audiobooks, Audible. Audible has a special deal for Bigger Pockets Business podcast listeners. All you need to do is go to audibletrial.com slash business. Okay, got that? It's audibletrial.com slash business. And you'll get a free Audible book and a one-month free subscription. Yep, a free book and an entire free month subscription. So go to audibletrial.com slash business. Sign up today. You will be so glad you did.
0: And if you're looking to put that free Audible offer to work, let me recommend checking out a book written by today's guest. So his name is David Hoffelt, and his book is called The Science of Selling. Now, I don't know about you guys, but selling is one part of my business that I really don't excel at, and I will take any help I can get. And so that's why we invited David onto our show today. So we talk not only about the strategies you can use to become a better salesperson, but also the mindset shifts you can make to put you a step above your competition when it comes to selling and sales. David walks us through every step of the selling process. He gives us tips along the way for how people like me and you can overcome our fear of selling, as well as for how fearless sellers can take their game to the next level. This is a really awesome episode for a really important topic. For more information on this episode. Feel free to check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com bizshow23. We have all the links there, including a link to David's book. Again, our show notes are at biggerpockets.com slash bizshow23. Okay, without any further ado, let's bring David onto our show.
1: How are you doing today, David? I'm good, Jay. I'm good, Carol. Great to be with you.
2: We are so excited to chat with you, David. So thank you for setting aside some time. So we really just love your book, The Science of Selling. And before we jump into your research and some of the strategies you lay out in your book, and I want to make sure our listeners know the full title of that book, right? And please correct me if I've got it wrong. It's The Science of Selling, Proven Strategies to Make Your Pitch, Influence Decisions, and Close the Deal.
1: That's it. You got Excellent. it. Well done. That's Excellent. a long title. That's hard but it's to do. Such a so good very title, good. and
2: I know it's very thoughtfully <laughs> planned for very specific reasons. So I love how informative it is right off the bat. So before we get into some of those strategies, can you, David, give us a little bit, uh, a little bit of your history and what was the path that led you to write a book on the science of sales?
1: Yeah. So my. My path is a little odd. So I got into sales like many people, kind of by accident. I I graduated with my master's degree and thought it would be for a very short period of time. And so I naively went to the newspaper where we used to go back then to look for jobs. And uh, I thought, you know, I could probably sell something, make some quick money. And so I, there was one ad that caught my attention. It said, no experience necessary, make $100,000 a year. And Jane Carroll, that, I had no experience. And the idea at a school of making $100,000 a year, I'm like, yes, I'm all in. So I called right up. I did not want to miss this opportunity. So I talked to someone on the phone. They invited me down for an interview, went through that process and got hired. And I got thrown into sales. And it surprised me. I actually fell in love with selling and it changed my life. i beat myself to sales and read books on it and research it and just trying to figure out how do I get good at this thing called selling? And what I began to do within a very short period of time is start leveraging some of what I had learned about how to research from getting my master's degree, which was in communications. And so I began to just look for how do I become a better presenter? How do I engage people and identify their needs more effectively? And looking at a number of scientific disciplines. To, to see how can I do that a little better? And I got some really helpful, useful tips and strategies and I began to use them. Became a top performer and long story short, got promoted a bunch of times, worked with many different companies and began to really help the sales teams that I was leading become top performers, helping the companies I work for become like on the Inc. 5000 list. I'm an experienced four or 500% growth year after year. I mean, some really exciting things. And I thought, well, I became obsessed with this science. It's an odd hobby, especially for someone in sales, because I just started pouring all of my free time. And actually, Carol J became a problem. I mean, all my free time, evenings, weekends, into reading scientific journals like a crazy person, right? And applying it to selling. And I just got such results. I just saw how relevant this was how it really explained what we do. And so I began my own firm back in 2009 and the book came out in 2016. And with the rest, as they say, is history. We help companies all around the world really align how they sell with how our brains form buying decisions to really better serve their customers, create deeper customer loyalty, and really guide their potential clients through that buying journey. So it's been a really exciting decade or so of my life, for sure.
0: That's awesome. And just before we jump forward, let me ask you, did you actually make $100,000 in
1: that job with no experience? That is a good question. No, I did not. And I was one of the top people right off the bat. I stayed there for a relatively short time, but it was kind of funny you bring that up because that's what the ad said. So I get in there and I started talking to all the different salespeople and I found out none of them were making uh, dollars a year. (laughs) So that that also... uh, Uh, woke me up to a couple other things as well that aren't so good about sales. But I was with that company for a little bit. And then after about six months, I left for another larger company and a lot of good things. But I'm glad... You know what? That ad did serve me though. Because if if it wasn't for that ad, I don't think we'd be talking right now. I'm not sure where I'd be. But that captured a young David Hoffeld's attention and uh, put me on a path and... And I'm so grateful I I responded to that. That silly little ad, no experience necessary, $100,000 a year, who would have thought, literally changed my life.
0: That's awesome. And and I'm grateful as well, because I'm going to be honest, part of the reason that I wanted to bring you on the show, I, I found your book a couple of months ago. And part of the reason I wanted to bring you on the show was, I am, I'll admit it, I am not good at sales. My very first sales job, I was in college, summer break, and I took a telemarketing job with the Washington Post, with the the newspaper. And basically, my job was to call people up and say, I want to give you a month free of the Washington Post. If you like it, you can keep it. If you don't like it, you can cancel. But basically, just give you the newspaper for free. Now, this was a product that a lot of people liked. This was in Washington, D.C. It was completely free. I imagine there are a lot of people who would be thrilled to get a free month of something. And I still had trouble selling because... To me, selling just, I felt like a used car salesman or best case, even if I didn't feel like a used car salesman, I felt like when I pick up the phone and call somebody, I'm imposing on their time. Mm -hmm. I'm asking them for something and it, it just, it never sat well with me. So how does someone like me, and I know there are a lot of people like me out there, someone who really hates the idea of having to make a pitch or having to convince someone to buy something, how do we get over that hump?
1: Yeah, it's a really good, a very relevant question because we deal with even salespeople that have that same aversion, right? They call it sales shame. There was actually a study came out earlier this year talking about that, particularly in the UK, where they studied what they called sales shame. And it's that idea, like, I don't want to impose on people. I don't want to push people. I don't want to come off as that stereotypical salesperson from the 80s, right? We don't want to be that individual. So, the first thing we need to look at is how we think because our behaviors really flow out of our thought process, and so this is a very common issue, and so, the first thing to do is to step back and to kind of deconstruct well what is selling real simply? Selling is influence influence is we're trying to get people to take what we say seriously and then be willing to act on it and something I think all of those who are watching and listening to us right now will recognize is all of us want to be influential, right? All of us, we're influencing every day, no matter what your job is, no matter what you do, whether it's to your spouse, significant other, your kids, your friends, coworkers, potential clients, doesn't matter who you're talking to, all of us are trying to influence people. Every time we open our mouths, we want people to take what we say seriously and then be willing to act on it. Wouldn't the world be a better place if everyone did what we wanted them to do, right? And so we all want to be influencing others. So salespeople are just professional influencers. And so we want to look at is when we're looking at potentially uh, presenting anything, whether it's uh, a newspaper or anything else, we want to look at what's the value to that customer. So when I do, if I am going to call someone up or I'm going to stop them their day and kind of present this to them and try to engage them, what do they get out of it? One of the things a lot of salespeople and others don't like about selling is how self-serving it can can often be. Meaning, we we present, we call up people and say things like this. Hey, Jay, I I just was doing some research on your organization and I wanted to see if I can get a few minutes on your calendar just to ask you some questions to see if we could potentially help you. We helped a lot of other companies like yours, but is there a time later this week we could connect? And of course, you're going to say, no, I'm busy. Right. Why would I do that? What's the, I get the value for me as a salesperson. I want to, what am I saying? Jay, I want to get together. I'm going to try to sell you something. Right. that's how I make money. But what's the value for you to go on this expedition of, you know, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, waste some of your time, and then we'll see what happens. So you always want to preview value because we want to operate with the philosophy that people care about one thing more than anything else themselves. Right. Who do I care about? This guy. Right. Who do you care about? You. And so what is the value I can present? So when I engage someone, I want to lead with value. And we have a philosophy we talk about briefly in the book where it's called give first, then ask. We leverage reciprocity. So before I ask you for time, or even start asking you a number of questions, I want to give you something of value. I want to be a value creator. And that's going to trigger reciprocity. Now you're going to respond, right? You're going to say, thank you. So I understand who you are. I've done research on you. I present something of value that leverages me as an expert or at very least a curator of value, and now I've earned the right to begin to ask you some questions to see if I could help provide deeper levels of value. The problem is most of the time in sales, and I think what you're reacting to, and rightly so, is we ask first, then give, right? We ask the potential client for something, like, I want some of your time. I want you to answer my questions, and then we'll see if I can give you something of value. It doesn't work like that. Give first, then ask. Changes the whole dynamic of the conversation.
0: Yeah, I love that. And in fact, it's funny because hearing it articulated it's I think everybody sort of realizes the value of reciprocity the value of giving value first before asking it and yet we don't necessarily think about it consciously. I was explaining to my kids I have an eight and ten year old and I was explaining to my kids a couple of weeks ago we received something in the mail from a charity and it had one of those nickels included like just in the in the front you take it out and there's a physical nickel there and they're asking for you to send them money and the kids were asking well if they're ask, if they're asking you to send them money why are they giving you a nickel and i explained to them exactly what you said it's yeah. it's simply reciprocity i feel now indebted to them because they've given me something even if it's of tiny value i i feel obligated to now give them something back and they hope it's a donation and so that's a great point that we always need to be thinking not about what we're getting out of out of a sale we have to be thinking about what we're giving first and then create some indebtedness, some, some, some sincere indebtedness on the other party.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And the way to leverage reciprocity, there's so many different ways to do it. It can be an insight. You can give value through knowledge. So it can be very easy to do or even curating some articles or if, you, if your organization or yourself, you create a blog, blog post or whatever it may be, videos that might be relevant for a potential client, you could kind of present that as kind of a taste of the value and whet their appetite, but it really differentiates you because people that give value to us before they ask for anything, to your point, we do feel indebted. And there's so much research on this. Uh, one of the things I always think about is those address labels a lot of nonprofits always send. Mm-hmm. They've done studies on that, and giving goes up by uh, right around 100%. No kidding, that
2: much. When you
1: send out address labels, right? And I love these things. I never realized how much I loved these address labels because uh, I get I, I give to a number of nonprofits and so they send me address labels. I'm always getting address labels, but I ran out last Christmas, like early December, and there was about a week long period where I had to write my address. No, I, no, I never no, how much I hate writing my own name and address. I'm like, this is the worst three seconds of my life, right? And it's just, <laughs> it's just funny. But when people, why do they give us that? They're not just worried about David doesn't like writing his own address. They know when they give they get more. Why? Because they, they trigger reciprocity and it's a mutually beneficial way to, to do that. So as, as people that want to be more influential and as sales professionals, we want to leverage that. What can you give a value? And when you start asking that question, and if you say, David, I don't have anything, I don't know. Right. Well, that's a good exercise to say, okay, work. How can I give someone a taste of what I offer? Is that an article? Is that an insight? Is what can that be? And if you start, when you start asking those kind of questions, it doesn't take usually very long. And we work with a lot of diverse organizations and usually very quickly they go, well, we can do this or this. And it starts getting that creative juices flowing. And when you start doing that, it will change your prospecting efforts. So you're trying to develop new business. I have literally had seasoned salespeople, 20 plus years of experience who have been cold calling for that amount of time. And they try these ideas and they say, David, for the first time, I got thanked for a cold call. It was the weirdest experience of my life, right? Someone said, thank you, because they led with value, and people were far more receptive. So it's really exciting, a little scientific principle that when you leverage can often produce astounding results.
2: Truly. And I'm really loving just this kind of whole mindset shift, right? Because we hear a lot of people who are experts in sales. We hear a lot about the whole process. But to really base your whole technique on the true science behind it, all of the research that's yeah. been done is a whole different way of looking. It's a different entire lens to look through. So so speaking of research, early in the book, I believe I read somewhere, uh, you talk a lot about how a lot of salespeople, they sit simply underperform. Okay. So can yeah. you talk more about that and what your research found?
1: Yeah. The, the, the data on underperformance is actually quite alarming. What the research shows depends on the year, but roughly between 40 to 50% approximately of salespeople underperform, uh, meaning they don't meet quota. So the minimum stand in their company is put on them. They underperform. And then when you look at, well, why is that? One study out of the Harvard Business Review found and looked at salespeople on real sales calls, 63% of the salespeople regularly engage potential clients in ways that drive down sales performance, that hinder the buying decision. So the the problems in sales are alarming. And I think to your point, the reason why is, how do we sell? When we ask that question, well, how do we sell? Most of sales philosophy is mimicry, meaning we look for best practices. That sounds good at first, except we've been doing that now for the last 50 years. So we're just copying the guy down the hall, right? And you can't innovate by copying. And also, who is the sale then based on? Well, it's based on the guy down the hall, right? How he sells or how I would want to be sold to, or what am I comfortable with as a salesperson? How would I want to present? What would I like to do? All of which is forgetting the most important person in the sales equation, which is the buyer, right? And so a science-based approach really forces us to get outside of ourselves and to say, how does our brain form buying decisions? And then we can align how we sell with how people buy. And when you do that, it becomes very prospect-centric, buyer-centric way of really serving people. And that's what's so exciting about this approach is that I see this every time I work with an organization or a salesperson. When they align how they sell with how people buy, It allows them to serve people, not just through what they sell, but how they sell, meaning they can guide them through that buying process into a confident buying decision they feel good about, build trust, and really do all those things that make sales a very wonderful, noble profession when it's done well. And to make sure you don't fall Mm -hmm. into, as you mentioned, Jay, kind of those old practices of selling that none of us want to do, that buyers hate and that really don't work in today's very transparent hyper competitive marketplace
2: great so based on based on that overall concept right this this concept of making it all about the buyer changing it from Focusing on you as the seller to really meeting those needs and figuring out what you can give and how you can serve that buyer. Can you walk us through more in more detail what that process looks like so that I, as a seller, who let's, let's just talk about, let's, uh, let's frame it in the terms of there are so many entrepreneurs that listen to this show that would just love to figure out what specifically they need to do, those actionable tips so that they can create uh, create a sense of trust and empathy along the way in the relationship and specifically sell to meet the buyer's needs? How do they do that?
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a big question. So let's dive right in. So we look at how does the brain form a buying decision? and We know quite a bit about that. Now, there's a lot we can say regarding like how perception is formed, like with reciprocity is one of the things we've talked about. And there's a lot of little rules that our brains use when forming judgments, some of which have literally won Nobel Prizes. So these are Transformative, But when we step back a little further, how does our brain form a buying decision? What the research shows, and this is about 60 years of research where scientists have been building on one another's studies and experiments over that period of time, we know our brains use commitments as the reference points for larger commitments. In other words, every buying decision is composed of certain small strategic commitments that guide that potential client on a progression of consent and into the sale. And the exciting news is, we know what these commitments are. And we talk about them a little bit in the book. We have a whole chapter dedicated to them. We call them the six whys. These are six specific questions, each beginning with the word why, that literally represent the mental steps our brains go through when forming buying decisions. And so the power of that is when we begin to align our sales process, meaning how we engage people, what does that buyer's journey look like? When we engage them with these questions and making sure we're addressing them and meeting them, we help people through that buying process. So it's hard to guide someone through their buying journey if we don't know how that buying journey occurs. So real quickly, the six whys in rapid fire, number one, why change? Why should we do anything? This is our biggest competitor. Because more often than not, when we lose sales, we lose it to nothing, not someone, right? Our potential client, it's not that they go with a competitor like us, they go, they say, well, I'm going to do what I've always done, which is not do business with you or anyone like you, right? And so they defer, default back to call it a status quo bias. So why change? What's that compelling case for change? Then why now? Hey, I want to make a change. Why should I do it now? Third, why your industry solution? Meaning, Can your potential clients kind of go around your entire industry and just create a solution themselves? Maybe it's not as good, but can they do it? If so, this is often, I call it a silent sales assassin because people don't see it coming when it can steal your sales. Fourth, why you and your company, right? Why should someone choose to do business with you? And what's really interesting we found is that people view the company you represent through how they view you. Meaning if they trust you, they'll more often than not trust the organization. Just like all of us can relate to working with a company, a customer service rep, or a salesperson as a consumer, and we're mistreated. And we say something like, I'll never do business with that company again. So a multi-billion dollar company, and we say no more because of one individual within that company, right? So... We judge a company that way. Fifth is why your product or service. Why is this the right one? And then finally, number six, why spend the money? Meaning oftentimes there's a limited amount of funds. Why should they invest in your product or service instead of something else they may need? And so justifying that, having a strong business case on why they should invest the money in this versus anything else can be mission critical as well. But the exciting news is If you align how you sell with those six commitments and you obtain them in the sale, the sale almost always occurs. But if one of those commitments isn't received, sale never occurs. Meaning someone will say, well, I'm not sold on you or your company, but yes, I want to buy from you. Or I'm not sure if I'm going to make a change right now, but yeah, I'll send the check in, let's sign the contract today, right? Of those things will never happen. So those six whys give amazing clarity when how does our brain form a buying decision? And more importantly, now what can we do to really guide people through that buying journey? And when people align how they sell with those commitments, amazing things happen. Sales cycles speed up. People feel confident as they go through the buying journey. And it differentiates you from your competitors who are simply not engaging people the way their brains form buying decisions, but kind of singing off the song sheet from decades and decades ago, and ignoring all this powerful science on our brains.
0: I absolutely love that. And one thing you said really stuck with me. And I know a lot of our listeners are real estate investors who are out there competing for deals or real estate agents who are competing for listings. And something you said early on, the the first why, was a lot of times we lose sales to nothing not to other people or competitors to or to other products and i think that's really really important our competition isn't the next guy that's going to come in and pitch after us. It's not the guy that came in and pitched before us. A lot of times our competition is inaction or not convincing the other side, the other party, the buyer, that what we have is going to meet their needs, that we're not going to meet their needs, that we're not going to be able to meet our commitments, whatever it is. That's the the hurdle that we have to overcome, not necessarily beating out somebody else's deal or somebody else's product.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we need to we need to think a little broader and we think about competitors. We think of people or companies very similar to us. And though that's one, uh, there are a lot more competitors. That and our most formidable one is literally the status quo bias, the bias all of us have to do what we've already been doing. Because change implies risk and our brains don't like risk. And so that change is so foundational. And we need to address that. And the way we do this is really impactful. And that is we really want to understand our potential clients. So really, we use, call it first, second, and third level questions, which is our questioning model that really helps us get into those high gain follow-up questions, allow us to have a deeper explanation and assessment of someone's current situation and what they want. one of the reasons this matters is there was some really interesting research just a couple of years ago where they looked at salespeople and they interviewed buyers. Across North America and ask them what their experience was like when they work with the salespeople they do. And they found that 88% of those buyers stated that they believe the salespeople they work with do not understand their problem enough to be able to help them solve it. Now, when I share that with salespeople, they go, well, David, good news. Not this guy, right? I'm, that's not me. I'm not one of that 88%. And I would push back and say, most likely you, you are. The idea is not that you don't understand their problem, but they don't perceive you understand their problem. enough. So you might walk in and say, I have all this industry knowledge. Trust me, I get your situation more than you do. I've been doing this for a long time. And all that may be true. But if we don't ask those deep dive questions and really let our potential clients know that we understand their situation, right? And we're going to learn more about them anyway through this process. But when they know the data on this is quite compelling. That when you ask these diagnostic questions, trust goes up. Meaning I feel that you, salesperson, understand my situation. And so now when you make recommendations, you can help connect the dots for me and I'm going to perceive more value. I'm going to trust what you say more, right? Just like if we went to the doctor and weren't feeling well and the doctor walked in and said, you're not feeling good? And you said, no. And he said, okay. And he wrote a prescription, handed it to you and walked out. You'd be like, I'm not taking this. Like what? You want a doctor to, to poke and prod and do some tests and then, really, and then come back and say, here's what I found. Even if that doctor knows right away when he or she walks in the door, they could tell for whatever reason, they can say, okay, I see what's going on. We still want them to investigate why. For our benefit, right? I want to trust what they say. And trust is so impactful in selling. So one of the ways to really address why change, understand your potential client situations. And even if you think you do, very early on, still go through the questioning process because you'll often be surprised. And more importantly, it helps convey to them that you understand their situation, which can be a huge differentiator because today with so much product and service parity in the marketplace, one of the biggest differentiators is not just what you sell, how you sell. How you sell matters now more than literally ever before. Before we move
0: on to the next part of our show, let's hear from one of our show sponsors. Real estate investing is known for a lot of things, mainly making a very select group of people a whole lot of money. But being an online cutting-edge experience is usually not one of those hallmarks. Well, thanks to Funrise, that's no longer the case. Funrise is the future of real estate investing. Their revolutionary model is transforming the industry thanks to their software, which cuts out the costly middlemen and removes old market inefficiencies. Fundrise delivers the kind of investing power you typically only see at the big institutions and can now bring real estate's unique potential for long-term growth and cash flow to individual investors like us. Getting started is simple and usually takes less than five minutes. When you invest with Funrise, you'll be instantly diversified across dozens of real estate projects, each one carefully vetted and actively managed by Funrise's team of real estate professionals. Then you can use their intuitive investor dashboard and real-time reporting system to monitor the progress of each property in your portfolio. Now that's the future of real estate investing. So, are you ready to get started? Then visit funrise.com/bpbusiness. That's f-u-n-d-r-i-s-e dot com slash business, And you'll get the first three months of fees waived. Again, that's fundrise.com slash business. Believe it or not, the world isn't built for entrepreneurs and small business owners like us. Sometimes it seems like there's no end to the hurdles we face while starting, maintaining, and growing our businesses. Finding smart tools to make running your business easier is crucial, which is why I'm here to tell you all about FreshBooks. FreshBooks is accounting software specifically designed for small businesses. It organizes and streamlines time consuming bookkeeping and accounting tasks, allowing you to do things like create and send branded invoices in just 30 seconds. Set up credit card payments right on your invoices to get paid twice as fast. And export tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with your accountant to tax time a breeze. FreshBooks customers say they save an average of 192 hours a year. Imagine what you could do with that extra time. Right now, we're offering our listeners a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks. No credit card required. So, just go to FreshBooks.com. Com and enter Bigger Pockets Business in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Again, go to freshbooks.com and enter Bigger Pockets Business in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the how. We've gotten the whys. We got the six whys, and and that makes perfect sense. But let's get a little bit into the how. And something I noticed that the book talked about that I really love, um, it talked about using stories to improve your pitch, improve your sales conversions. And this is one of those tips that, honestly, it's been coming up over and over again in my adult life when negotiating use stories, when presenting use stories, when building rapport use stories. And now in your book you talk about how we should be using stories to better sell. And I really wish I had really understood the power of stories earlier when I when I kind of got started in my career, because I've come to realize that stories are really how we connect with the other person. Can you talk a little bit about strategies for using stories when you're trying to sell?
1: Yes. A very important question because stories matter so much. There's so much compelling data on that. And it's not just being used in sales, but really all of business. If you think about some of the, the top uh, CEOs, when they get in front of at their company meetings, what do they do? When they tell stories, right? They work with speech coaches to make sure that they're engaging and they're leveraging stories and they're personable. And so now we there's so much data on the impact of stories. What stories do is they really de-risk a situation. Meaning when I can tell a story about a potential client in a very similar situation as you and kind of how they engaged with me and what their outcome was, we, your potential client will put themselves in the the place of the person in the story. So it's not so much that it's happening to that individual, it's happening to them. So similarity amplifies the effectiveness of a story. So the more alike the individual in the story is, the potential client you're talking about, for example is with your current potential client, the more applicable it is, the more they see themselves, and it lowers that perception of risk. Because stories take us into the future when we talk about our client stories, and it kind of shows us what life will be like after they invest with us or use our services. And so it's incredibly impactful. What's also interesting is how our brain processes stories. Stories are interpreted differently than statements of fact or data points. When we hear a statement of fact or a data point, we'll use our neocortex and the frontal lobes of our brain to really kind of analyze it uh, very, very unemotionally. But when we are engaged with a story, we use another parts of our brain, primarily as we process that story, which is why we can get very emotional when we hear good stories. For example, certain movies. There are certain movies that all of us, we get emotional when we watch them. We know it's fake. Right. We know it's actors on a movie set saying someone else's words, wearing someone else's clothes. Nothing is real. And we know that, but we're still moved, right? It still engages us, right? Even though we know everything we're seeing is a lie, right? It still engages stories do that in the greatest leaders, teachers throughout history use stories. So the first thing when it comes to selling with stories is number one, make sure you're using them, right? Number one, you want to have stories that you integrate into your sales process. And people love being told stories, right? It's engaging. Keep your stories brief as well. On average, I recommend one to two minutes. So you don't want to go into a 12-minute story when you're on a sales call. Usually, you want to keep them nice and brief and have a specific thing. There's a lot of interesting research as well on how we can tell stories to really engage our brain. The one thing I'll share with you that's really helpful is what you do when you end the story. So you tell a beautiful story, which you craft. When you come out of the story, you want to say, what does that story mean? So there's a point to the story. We're not just telling stories to tell stories. Clearly, we want to convey an idea. And the story is a powerful vehicle to do that. So when you come out of the story, you want to say something like, the reason I share that with you, Jay and Carol, is, and then what is a one sentence? What's the point? What's the overarching idea that that story brings to life? You want to tell them that. The reason why is our brains are always searching for meaning. And if you don't tell them the meaning of the story, people will always try to say, what does this mean? Right? And they'll, we do this instinctively. And oftentimes, people get caught up on things that maybe weren't the idea you really wanted to convey. Something in the story grabbed their attention and it distracts them from the, the point that would be mutually beneficial for them to grasp. And so when you come out of every story, I'd encourage you to say, the reason I share that with you is... And then one sentence, what is the point of the story? And if you do that, the impact of stories, stories will earn you sales. It is that impactful.
0: Can, can you give us a concrete example, like just pick a, a product or a service that you might want to be selling and what type of story might you tell and how might you sum that story up? Just to to give some, again, just, just make it a little bit more concrete on how
1: stories can and should be used. Sure. So one of the most powerful stories you can use as like a client story, a story about a, a client who was in a very similar situation to your potential client. You can also do stories to talk about your organization as well. So this can also be impactful. So those are really usually the two stories you want to at least focus on initially. And so when you look for a client story, what I'd recommend if you're part of a sales team, a good exercise is that all of you think about one client that you can put you into a story, meaning a client interaction that'd be relevant for future clients that you're dealing with. So if all of you can document and write down the story and focus on your introduction, focus on as much as possible having dialogue in the story. So bring that story to life. So if someone said to you, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous about moving forward, right? And you want to put that in the story how this client was nervous about moving forward with you, but they did and they had an amazing outcome. And I want to relate that to a client who right now is a little nervous about t- making that change. Instead of saying, and the client was nervous about moving forward, I would say, and and Bob looked at me right in the eye and said, David, I'll be honest, I'm nervous about moving forward. Right? So bring that story to life with some dialogue. Then I want to make sure it's nice and lean, right? Cut out any unnecessary or distracting information, and then making sure that we're also coming out of that story in the end. But if, and have a, what is the meaning of that story right at the end of it. And if, if you and everyone on your team, let's say, will do that with one story, when you get together, let's say there's five of you, uh, and you start sharing stories, or if you have colleagues or other people in your profession who you go, hey, let's each work on a few stories, and then you can share those with one another. And what's powerful about that is you can walk into a sales meeting with one story, and you walk out with five, right? And you get, you're always honest, always ethical when you present these stories. You know, my colleague actually mm-hmm. Um, dealt with an individual who was in a very similar situation, right? You can start the story like that. So it's always honest. You never have to compromise your integrity, but you can leverage these stories so effectively. So the first thing I would say is look for a client story, a story of a client who had a very common concern or problem or objection that you run into all the time. And then craft a one to two minute story. I would type it up and then read over it a few times out loud and see, okay, is there anything distracting here? Is there anything that pulls my attention away from the point of the story? Do I have a strong introduction? A best way to introduce a story is to make it about the person you're talking to. You know, when you saw a moment ago, Jay, really reminds me of, and then you go into the story, right? Because if you, if you say, hey, David, I had a potential client who was in a very similar situation as you, I'm like, "Uh, go on. Or, you know, what you just said uh, really reminded me of a client who said the exact same thing. In fact, the moment I met him, continue, right? It's about me, right? Yeah, you know, what is what is this genius you're talking about? What, is, what happened with them, right? So make it about them. And then if you fo- have the story flow really well, it's so compelling. But focus on a client story first. And I think when you start deploying them, you'll see the power of stories,
0: I love that, and, and it sounds like a great way to overcome objections. Because you're basically saying to the other person, without saying this objection's ridiculous or you shouldn't feel this way, you're basically telling a story about another client that felt the same way, or another seller that felt the same way, and this is how that seller, how we together got past it. And and basically, it's not lecturing them; it's it's allowing them to think of themselves in the same situation and come to their own conclusion.
1: Yes. And I think one thing to connect the dots of what we talked about so far with stories and the six whys is if you're dealing with an objection, right, and you want to address it with a story, focus that story also on addressing because the six whys, those six commitments we talked about earlier, when one of those isn't made, the buying process breaks down and it results in an objection. And this is a huge breakthrough. Uh, in selling. I think it's a big one. The six whys, when you apply them, there's so many implications for them. One of them is it tells you what the root of objections are. In fact, early in my sales training career, when I was testing some of this out, this is a long time ago now. I remember getting into rooms with salespeople of all different backgrounds, different industries, and having them list all the common and not so common objections they face every single time. I could tie it to one of those, one or more of the six whys. Meaning if you're talking to a potential client who has the means and authority to purchase from you and they make commitments to those six whys, the sale is almost inevitable. And so when they don't make a commitment, when they don't buy from you, you can identify why that is. And that's another implication of the six whys. That's a big takeaway is win-loss analysis. It's hard to get better and improve in sales if we don't know why we're losing sales. And so in the past, win-loss analysis, most people don't like to do them because Let's be honest, they're pointless, right? You go, why didn't they buy? I don't know, they didn't have any money? I don't know, I mean, uh, right, we don't know. But With the six whys model, you can hold it up and say, what commitment didn't I get? And what you'll find is most of the sales you're losing are because of one or two of those six whys. And what that clarity does, it allows you now to say, how do I strengthen my sales process to address those particular whys? And when you start asking questions like that, one thing always happens. You improve rapidly and sales go up. So use those six whys, not just for objections, but for that win-loss analysis. And it will help you get better much, much faster.
2: Very cool. So you talk a lot about the six whys and how it's important as somebody selling a product, service, et cetera, to gain commitment every step of the way along those six whys, correct? Storytelling you're talking about, for example, is just one such tool to help gain commitment in every step of this journey. What is another really powerful tool that each one of us can can start using immediately that will help us gain those commitments so that we close the deal?
1: Yeah, I want to share with you some Nobel Prize winning research that addresses that exact question from a gentleman named Richard Thaler, who won a Nobel Prize a couple of years ago and one of the pioneers of behavioral economics. And he looks at what's called choice architecture, which is exactly what you just brought up. How do we architect choices? How do we help people make good choices for them? And this is groundbreaking research. But one of the things we find that's been worn out of his research and boy, uh, uh, many others over a number of decades is what comes before a commitment matters a great deal. They call it priming in behavioral science. A good example of this is if you've ever watched a scary or horror movie before, all of us have, and usually we choose to watch these movies at night for some reason, right? So afterwards, it's usually late at night and we're ready to go to bed and we hear a strange sound in our house, the floor creaks, and we go, what was that? And then we go around and check all the doors and make sure they're locked, right? We might have heard that sound in the floor uh, 100,000 times before, but we never noticed it. Our brain filters it out. But well, on that night, we go, what was that noise, right? And we go check the door. Why? Because we're primed. That that movie primed us, put us in a heightened state of awareness for any kind of strange sounds. And so we can do something similar prior to commitment. And what we do is we want to affirm the value the commitment is based on. In other words, if you're having a hard time getting commitments, one useful strategy is to look at what you do right before you ask for a commitment. So for example, one of the things I can do would be to ask a question to guide someone in affirming the value of commitments based on. So for example, let's say I'm presenting my service or a product and I go through the presentation of it, but I want to go in for a commitment to affirm that this is the right solution for them, what we've talked about. And so right before I ask that commitment question, right, which gets into why your product or service, why number five, I can prepare them for that commitment by saying, does it make sense why so many other people in your situation will move forward with this solution because of A, B, C, and D? And they'll go, well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you feel that this is the right solution for you based on what we've discussed with A, B, C, and D? Right, so what what happened there? I prepared the brain to make that commitment by focusing on getting them to affirm the value that commitment's based on right before I ask for it. And so this is a prime example of choice architecture. By You help nudge people in the commitments. And people will often make them uh, if you do this. But oftentimes, commitments are rejected not because of the commitment because they're not ready to make it, right? Meaning they're still processing. And so they need help with this. And so focus on what you do right before the commitment. Get them to affirm the value. Uh, Commitment's based on a story can be a great way to do that. A question that summarizes the value like I just gave can be a great way to do that. There's many things. But focus on what comes right before the commitment and you'll find it naturally guides people into that commitment when you affirm the value or preview it right before you ask.
0: So basically baby steps into the close.
1: Yes. Yeah. Think about the sale as a series of incremental commitments that guide people in that progression of consent and into the sale. So the close is the final commitment in a positive buying decision that's intertwined and even dependent on the previous commitments that either have or have not been made. So one way to think about this, and this is important because that's the opposite of how I was originally trained in sales and probably most people who have been in sales for at least 10, 20 years or more. And that is we were taught that the close is the commitment, right? So you do a presentation almost like a play and people sit and listen and they go, ah, you might ask some questions, you diagnose needs, of course, you might have some continuation questions and things like that to get little amounts of buy-in. But the real commitment happens at the close, which is why most books on closing, at least historically, are two sections, right? They have the, the closes you use, these magical phrases you use to ask for the sale. And then how do you deal with the objections these phrases induce? That's the book. So, that's the exact opposite of what science has proven regarding how our brains form a choice. We do it incrementally, meaning when you or I, as a consumer, are listening to a sales presentation, we're not sitting there like a zombie, just like until the end, and we go, I think I will buy, or no, I won't. No, we're saying yes to that, no to that. We're making little commitments or not making them along the way. And then at the end, that will often be revealed. What we're talking about is a different approach. We guide people in proactively making these strategic commitments guiding them on this progression of consent. So the close is easy. Why? Because it's built on, it's just that final commitment, right? It's not this big looming commitment that stresses everybody out. Instead, it's the final commitment in the progression of consent. And it's a natural culmination of a sales process and a buying process as well.
2: So David, I love this. I love this way of looking at it through the science, which is When you get to the close, you've really, if you've done your job properly, according to the science, you have closed them over and over and over and over so that when you make that final ask, there really is no objection at that point, right? Because you've asked all of the right questions to get them to those points of consent every step of the way. And then that final end result naturally couldn't be anything. But yes, I would like to do business with you. Is that an accurate assessment?
1: Yeah. In a perfect world, that's what we want to do. And the power uh, of this is it really aligns selling with buying. So it's not something we do to someone. It's something we do with and for them. Meaning people w- have to go through this buying journey. So all of us have to commit to these six whys anytime we purchase anything. Now, oftentimes when it's a small purchase, we might do it almost unconsciously. But when it's a large purchase, we might agonize over each of these questions for a long period of time. But we have to go through them. If one of them isn't committed to the sale always breaks down and it doesn't occur. And so as you do this, you can really get to the root of these objections because you have to ask, what is an objection? And there's a lot of traditional nonsense on what objections are, but the reality, the science-based reality is it's a breakdown in the buying process. Someone is telling you, and all salespeople know this, when they give you an objection, they're saying, I'm not going to buy, and here's why. Right. And so what's causing that? A breakdown of the buying process. At some point in that buying journey, Things stopped, and they say it's not going to happen. Here's why: the six Y's tell us what that buying journey looks like, and when one of those commitments aren't made, it tells us what the objections are. So, to your point, Carol, which is a good one, it allows us to neutralize objections often before they're ever verbalized, which is what I want to do. So, it really allows me to to really help someone form this buying decision and really serve them through that. And this is a big deal because. So many buyers, when you do these surveys on what frustrates them about buying, it's hard, right? It's so hard. I mean, even for me at my firm here, I was making a big decision for our business to a number of salespeople. And it's so hard to make a a decision because they all say the same thing, right? And they all sell the same way. And it's, and it's not aligned with what I want. It's aligned with their internal processes. So it's all about them. And I have to try to figure out what the right questions are to ask them to get the information I need to make a good choice. And that's a frustration so many people have. And this approach gets us out of the way and says, selling should be about buying, right? And we really start conforming to the people that matter, those we want to serve. And that is just a game changer. And the results are sales go up, but more importantly than that, you can truly help those people that you want to help. I mean, if you're selling something, you believe what you're selling will truly meet someone's needs. But oftentimes, sales are rejected not because of the product or service, but because of how it's presented. And so when we really align how we sell, how people buy, the results are it's a win for literally one involved.
2: That's great. And I think that's something you said a minute ago was especially powerful. Um, semantics that I'm, I, I suspect they were conscious, but I'm wondering almost if because of all your research, it's just been kind of ingrained in your subconscious. You have referred to this throughout this conversation over and over Is not the selling process, but as the buying process, which really flips the whole conversation on its head from a traditional standpoint. And I just think that's really, really important for our listeners to remember is, again, it's truly about buyer choices and about the buying process, not the selling process. So I just wanted to reiterate that. And so that said, David, I was going to ask you the question of how has selling changed over time, especially with the advent of the internet and that type of thing. I would like to change the semantics on that as well, though. So with the advent of the internet, with so much competition for goods and services, we've got all this price transparency, there's transparency and reviews and ratings and all, those, and all those types of things. How has the buying process changed and what do we need to keep in mind when we are trying to sell our products and services to address that?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's an important one because it's one that we're all dealing with and that buying has gotten much more complex. Not that our brains have changed at all. Our brains are great grandfather's brains is the same as yours. That hasn't changed. But what has changed is the complexity of the modern marketplace with the internet. Now, even when I first got in sales, uh, I could often people didn't know my competitors and I didn't bring them up. Right, so they would talk to me, and they could figure out maybe a few of them. But today, they can do a Google search and find all of your competitors within less than a second. So it's hyper competitive today, and this is why, uh, because of this challenge in the marketplace, and also that, especially in a B two B sale, there's more decision makers now than ever before. More people influencing the buying process. So it's very common where salespeople are working with six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or more people involved in the buying process. So you have to manage all those needs, all those perspectives, and that buying journey for each of them. So it's more challenging to sell today than it was, which is why a science-based approach is needed now more than ever. Because, and this is really interesting, we talk about it a little bit in the book, in the last chapter, when you look at the what sales literature was like in the early part of the 20th century, so roughly a 100 years ago, and you look at what was being taught in selling, and you look at what was being taught today regarding, not technology, but how we interact with one another, there's not that much difference. I mean, the words are different. You clean the language up, modernize it. It's not that much difference, right? So in many ways, we're still still singing off the same song sheet from a long time ago. Why is that? Because we've engaged in mimicry, right? As a profession, which is odd, no other profession has really done this to the extent that sales does. We just copy each other's best practices, which means it's hard to innovate when you look in the mirror, right? You can't, you got to get outside of yourself to innovate. And so I think this approach is needed now more than ever because it focuses on the buyer. And in today's hyper competitive, very challenging, complex marketplace, we cannot resort to selling the way our great, great grandfather did if he was in sales, right? Because though people haven't changed what we know about the brain has. And in the last few decades, Everything has changed regarding how we understand the inner workings of our brain, how decisions are made, and to ignore that and to just go off like we're in the 60s or 70s and sell that way is just dangerous because what we found is when people embrace a buyer-centric science-backed way of selling, it gives them an unfair advantage over people that aren't. and It allows them to dominate and not compete, even when there's product and service parity. So it's a really exciting time to be in sales. I think there's never been a more exciting time because of science. And when you couple that with all the innovations in technology, it, it can be a, a lot of fun and you can really serve a lot of people through how you sell.
0: That's awesome. Okay, so we want to jump to the last segment of the show, the four more, but before we do that, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. I mentioned that I was going to be doing this interview today with you, and he. I promised him I would ask this question because this is, and I'm sure there are a lot of people that are listening. I myself can relate to this. For those of us that do cold calling, where it's less about the commitments along the way and getting to the close, it's more about how do we open? How do we build that rapport? How do we get past that fear of of, of getting on the phone with somebody that's not expecting our call, that doesn't necessarily need our product, that doesn't necessarily want to talk to us. What, and, and you don't have, this can just be a few quick tips, but what should we be doing if we're cold calling to kind of improve our chances of getting to a
1: sale? Yeah, it's a great question. So cold calling, I believe, is still relevant. Uh, in fact, the good news is because there's so much noise in the marketplace against cold calling, Most salespeople don't do it. So now it's... uh, I mean, a decade ago, cold calling was more prevalent. And so your potential clients were getting lots of calls every day. You were one of many. Not as much anymore. A lot of people aren't cold calling. So it's more of a white space. They engage them via social media, which has its place. But I think cold calling still does too. What matters is how you do it. Number one thing we mentioned a little earlier, you want to lead with value. So when you call someone up, you want to demonstrate your competency. You want to say, what can I give this individual, right? And I want to be very brief. I want to say, "What am I? why am I calling, right? What is the reason I'm calling? And I need to make sure it's prospect buyer-centric, not about me. So I want to make the cold call as much as possible about me giving value. Because once I give value, now I earn the right to ask a few questions, to really begin to qualify them on that journey right? And I can put, at the very least, even if they're not interested or I disqualify them quickly, right? On the cold call, at least I've put a, a good taste in their mouth for me and my firms. Maybe later on when they need something, they think of me. Why? Because I didn't call them up with this stereotypical seller-centric approach about, I need some time. Here's some questions I want you to answer. It's all about me, me, me. I start with them. I start with them. I've done some research on your organization and I've noticed that you're doing X, Y, and Z. And so I thought of you when I came across this article I wanted to share, I'll send it over to you, which goes into A, B, and C. Oh, okay. Right. We don't usually get cold calls like that. We're like, who's this? uh, Okay. Thank you. I'm curious though. And then you can ask a few questions, right? So you can kind of, we have a framework for doing cold calls that's really effective and it begins with lead with value, right? Earn the right now to ask. And you'll find if you lead with value, people are more receptive to answering a few of your questions. That'll allow you then to share some more insights, generate interest, and then go to the next phase of the sale or disqualify them quickly. But at least you get an accurate assessment of where that individual is, do I want to pursue them or not, if you lead with value. And one final thing, as you lead with value, you'll often find this, even if that individual is not a good fit for you, you disqualify them, they go, yeah, we're not really looking at that right now. Oftentimes they're very receptive to giving you a referral of someone who is right? Why? Because you gave first, then you ask. They have that psychological debt of reciprocity. So when you give first, then ask, it literally changes the whole nature of a cold call and can be a a game changer when you use it effectively.
2: That is phenomenal. David, Thank you, because Jay, listen to that. Look how much you've got to give. You've got so much knowledge that you give freely anyway. Now you can take that very concrete tip: when you pick up the phone and you want to cold call someone, just start giving and look at all the doors that it's going to open up. So, David, thank you for providing that. It's it's just it's interesting how almost it's how it's so intuitive, but we don't think of it in that way. So, thank you for putting it in that framework. That's awesome.
1: Sure, my pleasure. My pleasure.
2: Okay, cool. So Jay, are you thinking it's about time to go
0: to the four more segment of our show? I think it's about time. So we are going to move on to what we call the four more. And this is where we ask you four quick questions. And then we ask you a more question, which is where can our listeners find out more about you? So are
1: you ready for the first question? All right, let's do it.
0: Okay. So can you tell us what your first or your worst selling job was and what lessons did you learn from it?
1: My worst selling job. I would say, you know, I usually don't talk about this. When I was VP of sales for a company, the company had done extremely well, but it was one of the, one of the reasons though, why I started my own firm was because of the way that the CEO managed myself and others in the organization, just some horrible management practices that created such pain. I'm like, forget this. I'm going to work for myself. And it was actually a, a big turning point in my life, because when things got hard as I was starting my firm and doing some of this research very early on, so many, many years ago, before anyone knew who I was, no book, no one wanted to talk to me, right? I was just starting out and very unknown. It was that experience that kept me going when it got really tough. I was like, you know what? No, I, I want to I work for myself, right? I want I want to change my life in this area. And during some of the really challenging times, and there were a few, It was that idea that, so sometimes my point of it all is that sometimes bad things that you go through can actually be a catalyst to lead to something great.
2: Totally. If you
1: use them that way. So oftentimes some of our greatest gifts are some of our worst experiences.
2: Yeah. You just have to turn them around and, and rock and roll and just make something better out of it. That's right. Okay, so here's your second question. David, what is one key thing you know now? One gold nugget that you've gleaned over the course of your career that you totally wish you would have known way back in the beginning?
1: Mm, there are so many. If I go back and talk to young David, uh, what would I tell him? Many things about sales. I think the six whys is a big one from a, from a, about the sales team. More attentive to that, to don't view the sales process as a presentation and then become, try to master the close. Think about incremental commitments. That would be a key one. On a more of a personal nature, I would say, find what you want, right? And then take massive action, right? And there is a wall, I believe, around success and it's only scaled through hard work. And so it is hard to become successful in any area of life. And so I would say, don't run from that work, run towards that work. Put in the time, put in the effort, do those things others won't do if you want to experience a life and results that others uh, won't have. And so I would tell him that. I would say, you know what? Push. Push. Not just for a day, not just for a week, but find what you want and then go after it for years and years because it'll take that much to get to an elite level at anything. But once you get it, it it will change your life.
2: That is such an awesome soundbite right there. I want to copy that and paste it and plaster <laughs> it everywhere. It's perfect.
0: Awesome. Question number three. What's the worst piece of advice? that's common in your field, and what should, what should we do to turn that advice kind of on its head to make it good advice?
1: Yeah, I think what's really prevalent right now in sales, and it has been for a number of years, is this over-dependence on technology. Now, the reality is technology is transforming selling in positive ways, but so many people are getting so dependent on it that they're forgetting that it's still one human talking to another, right? It's still human to human. We don't take that out. Still people making a buying decision. And so I feel like oftentimes the the new shiny thing in sales is technology. So we're pursuing that, but we're forgetting about the things we've been talking about right now, that we're still dealing with people. Technology is a powerful tool. When you leverage this science we've talked about with technology, awesome. But when you try to replace uh, the interaction with people with pure technology, there's something missing in that. All the data shows and what matters still is people still need to talk to another individual. They still need that human-to-human encounter to make a large buying decision. Sure, you can purchase something on Amazon for $15 without talking to a human being. You read some reviews and you move on. But for a larger, more consequential decision, you want to talk to a person. You want that encounter. And so I think not forgetting that, to leverage technology for the powerful tool it is, but to not neglect or forget how important it is still to focus on how we interact with people. Even if you use technology, how do you leverage it? Right? So if you prospect via LinkedIn, right, how do you do that? Leveraging this science will help you engage people more on LinkedIn or any platform you use. So be mindful of that. I think is a, is a big mistake that people often they're going too far to the technology and forgetting what else matters in addition to technology.
2: Awesome. Okay, David, your fourth question. What is something in your personal or professional life, whether it be a product or service or technology or whatever that you've splurged on at some point? and it was totally worth that splurge. Let's
1: see. What have I splurged? For? It's been interesting. Uh, I grew up quite poor, and so spending money has always been hard for me, just because I didn't have any growing mm-hmm. up. My parents were always, didn't have a lot. In fact, at one point in my life, when I was about 12 years old, I was homeless for about six months. So interesting wow. uh, background. So I view money a little differently. But one of the things I've done recently, this is about a year ago, was we had a workout room put in in our house. And just wanted to start working out more and lifting weights. So bought a bunch of expensive equipment and put it in. And I love that room in my house. I find it so awesome when you're having a bad day or things seem out of control to go focus on one thing I can control, which is me. And just go and lift some heavy weights and move some heavy stuff around the room. And just that, just to see your body transform as well. So we spent quite a bit of money on this workout room. And I, I tell you what, it's probably my favorite room in the whole house. Now. That is I love this thing. That
0: is so cool. Love it. Okay, let's jump into the more part of the four more. This is where we're going to give you an opportunity to talk and tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, where they can find out more about your business and how they can connect with you.
1: Excellent. So if you want to learn more, go to Huffeld, H-O-F-F-E-L-D, group.com. Huffeldgroup.com. On that website, you'll find a list of our services, which we have workshops, virtual learning as well, really robust virtual learning where you can actually learn and practice what you're learning. We have live simulations, really neat stuff. And we also have a lot of resources on there that are at no cost from... Uh, articles, blogs, videos, and so on. So you can really learn more about the science of selling and learn more about the book, The Science of Selling, which is available literally anywhere fine books are sold.
0: Awesome. And just a reminder to everybody out there that the reason David is on the show is because I found that book a couple months ago. And literally within a couple chapters, I said, I've got to have him on the show. Oh, you should
2: have heard him. He's like, I've got the perfect guest. We cannot wait to talk with him.
0: So excited. (laughs) And again, if for no other reason than purely selfish reasons, (laughs) this was helpful to me. This was tremendously helpful to me. So I know it's going to be helpful to our listeners as well. David, Thank you so much for being here and we, we really appreciate it and we look forward to having you on come the next book. Is there a next book?
1: There is. We just signed a book deal. We have another one coming out. It'll be the uh, November of 2021. Awesome. It'll be released. Awesome. So mark your calendars, but it's going to be, we're going to get into a lot of uh, really interesting things from science back mindsets that drive sales success, behaviors, how, our, how to get better, faster, how our brains learn, and then also getting into some sales leadership hiring, coaching, some really neat stuff. So in this next book, it's going to be a little shorter chapters, really engaging. I'm really excited to begin uh, the process of writing. We've done a lot of the research already, but we're just beginning to write actually next month. And uh, we'll dive in, but it comes out the end of 21. Awesome. Look forward to having you back then. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
2: Thank Thank you, David. All right. Have a great day. Oh my goodness. Seriously, honey, how Amazing was that interview
0: that was fantastic, so,
2: my gosh, oh, I'm cutting you off again. You're go always figure.
0: cutting me off. I, I know, that. I was just gonna say, I hate selling. Selling terrifies me. You've known me long enough to know that it's my least favorite thing in business. And that was that was actually really helpful. Like I don't think I'm as scared to go out and sell as I was before that interview started.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear that because you have to think about, baby. here's the deal. We usually think about selling in the terms of really making it all about us. And so you don't have to make it all about you. You're perfectly happy having the attention on the other person, on the buyer, on your customer, on your client, on your audience, and really relating it to that person. And that's what he taught us to do. So I think you have some really actionable steps on how to make that work. So I thought it was really awesome. I
0: agree. Okay, so are we ready to, uh, to take it home?
2: Let's take it home.
0: Okay. Thank you, everybody. She's Carol. I'm Jay.
2: Now go affirm your value to buyers today. Have a good one, everybody.
0: Thanks, everyone. Have a good week.
2: See you later.